Welcome to the Cato Daily Podcast with your host, Anastasia Glova. Today is Tuesday, April 10th. On yesterday's anniversary of the fall of Baghdad, tens of thousands of Shia followers of Iraqi cleric Maktad al-Sadr marched in the streets demanding an end to what they view as an occupation. They ripped and burned American flags and shouted for the U.S. to leave as al-Sadr called on Iraqis to stop targeting each other and to redouble their efforts to defeat the, I quote, arch enemy. But the demonstration was peaceful, perhaps surprisingly so. Director of Foreign Policy Studies Chris Preble grapples with the present situation in Iraq. The March-April issue of Foreign Policy magazine features Maktad al-Sadr as the number two winner of the conflict in Iraq, second only to Iran, which was delighted to see Saddam toppled and has capitalized greatly on the outcome. How did this relatively obscure cleric al-Sadr grow to become so influential? Well, it's true that the U.S. invasion in 2003 really boosted the credentials of this relatively young, relatively inexperienced cleric who was much loved in the Shiite slums in Baghdad, who are now named Sadr City after his father, but were named Saddam City before Saddam was pulled down. And so it's true that this relatively young person has tapped into the reverence that many people felt for his father, even though his religious credentials aren't quite as strong as some other religious leaders like Ayatollah Sistani. But... Muqtada Sadr is an Iraqi, and he has always been able to kind of differentiate himself from some of the other Shiite parties, such as Skiri and Dawa, who have always been quite closely aligned to Iran. And I think there's always the potential for him to rally some more Iraqi support based on his kind of genuine Iraqi nationalist credentials. Now, at the same time, we got to remember that he has managed to rally so much support to his side by preaching against the U.S. occupation, and that's the theme of the demonstration, and has been a very frequent, important part of his sermons going back to early 2004, late 2003, actually. Interestingly, here you had Sunnis marching along with Shia in the protest. Doesn't this open up the window of opportunity that American troops need to withdraw without plunging the country into civil war? Well, I wish I could be quite that optimistic, but it is important to go back and remember that in 2004, the same time the United States first tried to crack down on Sadr, arresting one of his key aides and shutting down one of his newspapers, that event coincided with the uprising in Fallujah. And Sadr was very quick to support the Sunni uprising in Fallujah, even though he was a Shiite and appealed to kind of Iraqi national identity as against the U.S. occupation. So it doesn't surprise me that much that he continues to try to rally both Sunni and Shiite support. But the fact remains that the bulk of his support comes from Shiites. And we have to also remember that when the Golden Mosque was destroyed in Samarra last year, Sadr publicly said that he did not want reprisals against Sunnis, but privately, and we think in terms of the, his militia activity, has been very actively involved in some of the worst sectarian violence. So he's playing a bit of a double game here. At the same time, Iraq just witnessed an uncharacteristically peaceful protest. Isn't this a sign of democracy in action? Isn't this precisely our goal? Well, what we see is there was a ban on vehicular traffic in Baghdad in the vicinity of this march to Najaf. And similar to the bans that were put in place at the time of the elections that were held back in 2005. So there have been times when the U.S. or Iraqi officials have been able to clamp down on violence by kind of resorting to extraordinary measures. But of course, you have the risk when you deal so strongly with security issues and trying to prevent violence, you tamp down on economic activity and political activity that you want to stimulate at the same time. So it's a real trade-off there. What can we expect next from al-Sadr? 
Well, the first question that I have is, where is he? Because the U.S. administration and the military say that he is in Iran, and that's where he's been essentially since the surge started back in February. His supporters insist that he is still in Iraq, but the fact that he did not appear publicly at this march, that every statement that he has issued has been as a statement, not as a public speech, implies that he is in hiding in some sense. As he has been in hiding, his ability to control his movement has actually eroded. I see this as something of a desperation effort on his part to reassert his authority over his militia, which is a very loosely organized band of, at some level, just kind of criminal band. And so you're starting to see some people challenge him in his absence. And I think he's really trying to restore that order. He still has the political power in the form of his bloc in parliament. But I think what we're seeing from him now, what we're likely to see in the near future, is an attempt to reassert control over his so-called army. Bringing this back to the foreign policy article, even as the so-called number two winner in Iraq, he's not powerful enough to keep the country together, is he? No. he's again, certainly has the support of the mainly Shiites in Sadr City and in some of the holy cities like Najaf. But his influence wanes considerably even amongst other Shiites who followers of the other main Shiite parties. He doesn't enjoy the support of the Kurds in the north. And even most Sunnis would not be inclined to follow Muqtada Sadr, is my sense. So while he is very powerful, he's powerful enough to really kind of throw a wrench in things. I don't think he's powerful enough to kind of rally the entire country behind him. We really wouldn't want that, would we? Uh, no, we wouldn't. Because again, I emphasize, I said at the beginning, the reason that Muqtada Sadr has risen so far so fast is because of his anti-Americanism, his strongly worded sermons against the United States, his denouncing of the occupation. To the extent that he has rallied support beyond his core base, the people who were, who were followers of his father, it is directly attributable to his anti-Americanism. And so I think it would be not in our best interest to see him be the leader of Iraq, which again, I think is unlikely. Thank you very much, Chris. The majority of support for the Cato Institute's work comes from individuals, and Cato depends solely on tax-deductible contributions to provide the public with a wealth of free resources, including this podcast. We hope you'll consider supporting or even joining Cato. For information, please go to www.cato.org.